Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Last year, the Center for Literary and Comparative Studies at the University of Maryland College Park launched a new project, Anti-Racism in the Contemporary University, a series of events and publications which explicitly sought a reckoning with the institution's racist past. Anti-racism has become a buzzword in recent years, particularly on college campuses, and the University of Maryland Project insists on treating anti-racism as more than fresh window dressing for existing and often toothless diversity and inclusion programs. In this episode, I'm speaking with three scholars closely involved with the project about anti-racism and about Netflix's original series, The Chair, in which the current state of the contemporary university they are seeking to reform is dramatized. Tita Chico is director of the Center for Literary and Comparative Studies, as well as professor of English at University of Maryland, and has thus ushered the anti-racism in the contemporary university project into existence. Amanda Bailey is professor and chair of the Department of English, and also recently authored a review of Netflix's dramedy for Inside Higher Ed. And Emily Yoon Perez is a recent Maryland English PhD who is part of the Anti-Racism in the Contemporary University's inaugural program, as well as contributor to the special series they published with Los Angeles Review of Books. Dr. Perez is now an assistant professor of English at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. For more about our guests, as well as a bibliography of the works mentioned in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash anti-racism. One of the things that I hope would come out of the chair is an opportunity to have some conversations about what is the state of literary studies and how is it represented in the chair? How does the chair capture things that we are all, as members of this profession, worrying about, working on, moving towards? And I certainly think that the anti-racism in the Contemporary University Project is exemplary of collaborative work made possible by an institution that is in in a certain kind of flux, um, and so I thought we'd start. The question I wanted to ask is, what you know, what is anti-racism in the contemporary university? How did it come about? How has it developed? Where is it going? And what can listeners who maybe haven't spent time with it yet, what should they do to to get involved, get engaged? This work is possible because of our chair. Amanda has really made the space and the, the intellectual priorities available for, for the center to do this sort of work. In our pre-conversation, you were talking a little bit about this podcast emerging from the pandemic context. So a year ago, or more than a year ago, there were two options for the center. I had just come on. It's a three-year term faculty cycle in and out, and there's a staff member who's consistently there working in support. But there were two options, and one was keep our heads down and go through what the year might or might not be, or go big. And with Amanda's support and encouragement, that's what we did. And so we spent a year hosting 22 different conversations including work in progress with uh, Dr. Emily Yoon Perez, who's with us as well, had over 60 speakers and sustained a conversation across the year to think about what can we do more than just words, to say that Black Lives Matter and to issue statements of solidarity, even though we all traffic in the currency of language and we know how important words matter and the stories that we tell matter, Without action, it is rather impoverished. So we dedicated our limited resources to making space for these conversations and this work and understanding that anti-racism as a concept gets us to move beyond the limitations of diversity and inclusion, which really premise on, let's just have more voices. We're not going to change anything, but let's have more voices. And anti-racism imagined, and in some ways imagines an active stance against racism. 
But when, you know, the commissioner of Major League Baseball is saying anti-racism and company after company, it threatens to get co-opted and become inadequate in and of itself. So one of the things that the collective last year, and then it emerged in the symposium published in Los Angeles Review of Books, was to think about anti-racism as both a, a topic and a practice filled with inconsistencies and contradictions, but all heading towards imagining a more just community. And in having a more just community, a more just community that really thinks about what literature and literary studies does to help imagine and make possible those communities. I very much sympathize with the narrative you give there of the, the very terminology of anti-racism being something that has exploded just in recent years. I think only two years ago, maybe it was three years ago, a colleague and I taught Ibram Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning. At the time, anti-racism as an idea, as a term, was not something that was broadly familiar to our students. It was not something that was necessarily part of the sort of mainstream press conversation. Uh, it felt as though the ideas in Kendi's work were really kind of fresh and new, and now they're everywhere. One of the things I liked about Emily's essay is that she deals with the question of the theory and praxis of anti-racism, right? And so what, maybe I'll start with Emily, but I'd like to ask this of all of you, right? What does anti-racism mean to you, both as a concept, as Tita put it, but also as something that has a praxis and has an implementation? So I think this is a really uh, nice place to bring in the chair in the series, because this is one place where I see this tension really playing out. Um, so for me, anti-racism in theory is the easy part, right? Especially as scholars who think um, critically about texts and ideas and how we exist in the world. But then when it comes to the practice, there are a lot of different ideas of how we can put those things into practice. So I think um, in the show, one of the things that struck me was how Ji-Yoon, um, Sandra Oh's character, gets really stuck um, in how she, as someone who is a proponent of anti-racism, um, becomes this pawn in all these ways in which anti-racism becomes performative and doesn't actually address the underlying issues of the university. So one scene that I found that this was really interesting was actually when she's teaching. Um, so there are three moments that I kind of tracked in the show when she's teaching in the classroom. And in the first two, we have these quotes up on the chalkboard. The first is Gloria Anzaldúa, and then the second is Audre Lorde. And of course, we know that she's an Emily Dickinson scholar. So I, I remember watching this and kind of being like, huh, why does she have these quotes up on the board? And in the first scene, she doesn't address it at all. And then it's not until the very final um, episode of the show that she is talking about Emily Dickinson. Um, so I think for me, that really resonated as um, especially a woman of color in the university, this pressure to embody this diverse perspective in a way that can feel tokenizing and can feel performative. But then when she is sort of faced with all these different situations in which she could actually promote anti-racism in a real systemic way, she's constantly being undercut, right? For me, that is the struggle is that in the classroom, you know, you can put these quotes up on the board and you can engage with your students. And I think for me, that's where I really try to focus my work is supporting students in my own praxis of anti-racism. But then it becomes very difficult and muddy. And um, there are all these, you know, conflicting ways in which um, the institution and the various people within the institution imagine anti-racism to look like. So um, I think that is part of what we're struggling with especially with how new this idea has been, even as it's sort of gaining traction and becoming more mainstream, is that we kind of all think there's this idea of anti-racism, or we might all think that there's one way of understanding it, but then in practice, that is not singular, right? So um, in theory, I think it's easy to kind of come up with one sort of overarching idea of how we might define it, but then it becomes very contentious and muddy once we try to put it into practice with multiple individuals involved. I want to piggyback on what you're saying, Emily, and that was just so, so well said. In my position as an administrator, as chair, the the muddy waters in which I 
wallow, but I don't want to go too far in that metaphor. <laughs> metaphor um, is is pra- is practice, and I wish I could say with praxis with an X, but it's unfortunately not that sexy. And I I I come at it from the point of view of what anti racism is not. And I have seen it attempted to be in an institution. And that is what I call risk management disguised as empathy. That's been a kind of a a one whole layer in which I've encountered it. Another is a, a kind of a thinly veiled effort to make white people more comfortable with racism and the presence of racism around them, if not perpetrated by them. (laughs) That's a whole other area. And then the last one is anti-racism as something sexy. And I think here of the work of um, the scholar Sarah Ahmed, she's served as a diversity officer, in fact, at an institution and she says some very smart things about this work. And she, and she compares it at one point to plumbing, which I, from my point of view, think is profound in that the place where anti-racism happens is often down below, in the pipes, out of sight. It's actually incredibly dirty, mucky work. It has to do with things like revising and revising and revising a departmental plan of organization and having maybe anywhere from one to eight meetings about enfranchisement and who's on a particular committee or the name of that committee or something as even as crazy as, you know, where a comma is in the description of a mission of a committee. And I I say that not to be pedantic, but to say that the, the, this work, when we're talking about structures and systems, if we're really committed to that, the first step of this work is to acknowledge that we are in an institution. And I love that the last, uh, for me, your last podcast ended with someone saying something like, I don't believe a fucking thing an institution <laughs> tells you, you know, this, this massive distrust of the institution. But the fact is, that it's it's here and this is in fact the animal that we have to work with this is this is it there's no i get my paycheck but i'm not really up or part of that institution i won't speak for emily because i don't know her personally as well as i do tita but i will say that i know tita for instance who also has had some administrative experience is someone who like myself i think really works with and through the structure of the institution. And I don't say that in an an apologist way at all, but in a hacker's way. Carlton Green, who's on our campus, and he works in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, has taught me the language and the framework, which is that every moment is about opportunity and resources. Every exchange, every encounter, And there are thousands of those in our lives, hundreds in a day. So in the planning and execution of any work that the university does, and so my purview for these three years as the center has to do with what are our resources, who gets them, what opportunities are available and to whom. And so within that, programming and developing the conversations is an enormously collaborative process. It is me as a white Latina full professor cultivating networks and relationships with early career scholars, finding out where those conversations are, who those those people are, creating an environment that is ethically and intellectually generous and welcoming. And that goes to the invitation, to the compensation, to the time of day, to acknowledging that sometimes people are just too busy and they don't want to do it or it doesn't work and circling back that kind of patience, but also down to setting up the technology. All of this is online and the internet is a terrible racist place. So setting up a kind of safeguard so that at, at 
every moment what is at the center and who is at the center. That's the way that I understand the, the, what Amanda's talking about is that deep structural work. Because at every point, when I make something available to something, someone, I'm making it unavailable to someone else. Doing that in the long context of who has had opportunities and who hasn't. Faculty of color, black faculty, Latinx, indigenous, all of these faculty on campus are expected to do this work without compensation. Getting, getting into the plumbing, as Amanda says, and redirecting. But at every, every moment, so it is about opportunities and resources. And the other thing that I wanted to say to kind of in what Amanda was talking about, that one of our first programs, uh, Aisha Wilkes, who's a graduate student at McMaster, talked about the difference between discomfort and oppression. And she is, identifies as a Black Canadian. And she talks about how in her classroom, her white students mistake discomfort for oppression. We talk a lot about safe spaces, like the classroom being a safe space, but for whom mm -hmm. and for how. And so I really hear what Amanda's saying about this kind of rhetoric of anti-racism being presented to make white people feel better and less uncomfortable, when in fact the ethical space of change and intellectual growth is really a space of discomfort. And it is not harm. It is not harm at all. Mm -hmm. One of the really, I think, thoughtful and pretty ingenious moments in the chair comes when Jiyoon is confronted by her dean and one of the publicity managers about an ongoing campus controversy. And they end up lecturing her a, you know, 40 something woman of color who has by her, you know, in her own account had to scrape her way to the position of chair, oftentimes by not being nice. They're lecturing her about the terms of the students' protest. It's an absurd moment where you're sort of looking across the table from the perspective of these two middle-aged white men lecturing a 40-year-old woman of color about her students' sense of injustice. It, it captures exactly what Amanda expressed, that risk management that is masquerading as empathy. I, I really appreciated all of the, the ways that you're thinking through your own circumstances and our own circumstances capture in some ways what the show does well, at least in, in my reading, that oftentimes we have these moments in the chair where it feels more like a political thriller, right? Where there are backroom deals being cut between various entities and very various interests. Oftentimes we have the feeling that Interpersonal politics is more important than anything else in moving the institution uh, in one direction or another. And so I was hoping that each of you could talk about the experience of sort of watching the chair. It centers multiple plot lines that have to do with, with prejudice, oftentimes racial prejudice, gender prejudice. And how did you experience this show as people who have been you know, on the front lines thinking about anti-racism in the con contemporary university. So I will say when I saw the trailer for the chair as a Korean American woman in an English department, I was trying to really hedge my expectations. I'm also a huge Sandra Oh fan. So, you know, I was really trying to balance expectations with you know, what the show might do, but what you're talking about with this risk management and um, the different layers of facing discrimination um, and having to navigate that for me, especially um, because I identified so with so many of the identities that Sandra O's character identifies with at the same time that I was really eager to keep watching it. I binged it, you know, in a day at the same time, I was very uncomfortable at various moments just because of how familiar some of those scenes were. I guess one of the things that made me really uncomfortable, and I think this that the show I um, was kind of doing this self consciously, was that the harm of Bill's actions are actually never addressed, right? So there's no 
reparation for what he does in the classroom is sort of written off as a joke and then snowballs into this thing that's just seen as not meant to be harmful, even as it is harmful. So I think there are kind of moments when it hints to this, where um, I think at the student rally in the quad, one of the students talks about how they find a swastika on campus, right? So that there is an actual consequence to Bill's actions on the students that he never takes responsibility for. So I think that part was very familiar in a lot of ways of self-proclaimed allies of racial justice and gender equality don't always in practice put those things into action, right? And he is so self-involved the entire series. And then just, I think it's in the final episode, there's that scene where he and Ji-Yoon kiss in front of her house. And that was another scene that just made me so uncomfortable because of how quickly he switches from desiring Ji-Yoon to, you can see his face just shift and it's very violent, right? Um, Even though he's not physically violent, just that complete 180 from I desire you to I am so angry with you in this almost violent manner. Like that is also I think very familiar for just women in general. So those two kind of moments made me very uncomfortable because it was so familiar, not because I thought the show shouldn't have done it or something like that. But yeah, those those two moments were very cringy. (laughs) Yeah, I want thank you, Emily. I, I feel so validated. (laughs) While you're reading the show, something I just want to get out there is that, um, again, just to get on the table, that I I didn't look I didn't look to the show for verisimilitude, so I'm not that's not the angle I'm coming at this from. But I I was disturbed by what I think is a kind of a, a premise to the show, and it was interesting that you used the word Matt when you said that it was interested in these micro politics of department life and so on, because I found the show disturbingly apolitical. And I think this resonates a little bit with what Emily is getting at. And what we see here is a popular imagination, or maybe it's wishful thinking, question mark, I'm not sure, of the academy as a place invested in cultural authority, but without any political efficacy. What I saw in the show, and this actually came out in the previous podcast, was that what happened in the classroom, no matter what else was going on all around in the show, remain contained in a very static notion of literary studies with, of course, the innovation of you know adding some music or so on. But it was still very based in the text. And that what happened in the classroom did not lend itself or create a framework for any kind of notion of this Pembroke... <laughs> university being a place to fashion the the, the political subject among the students or among the faculty or among anyone. And so really what the stakes of this show were, as I think as they were put forward to us, was just as you're saying, Matt, which was this idea of the life of the department or the sustainability of the department built around its ability to be, you know, an archive of and a place for the transmission of culture. I personally, I don't like that because I feel very strongly for me, the hope of the university as an institution, and I keep having to go back to this, qua institution, is that it accepts its role as a social actor. And I I have been doing a lot of work lately with Tom Hayden's Poor Huron Statement. I'm involved in a new project that I'm working on called the Reparative Humanities. You know, we can go on and on about all the flaws and the failures of SDS and that moment and the failings of the racial politics of that moment. But one of the things that the Poor Huron Statement says is the university is the one place that asks, that allows you to ask, could this be different? Is there an alternative? And, and it does so, strangely enough, in an institutional <laughs> format. And in that way, it's a, it mediates, you know, it mediates our, our relationship to the economic sphere. It mediates our relationship to the governmental sphere. It's, it's in that way, it functions as this kind of potentially experimental space. And I think the chair really, as a show, 
I mean, obviously these are like the bar is high in my mind. So forgive me, but I'm an academic, but I think the chair missed, missed an opportunity to show that kind of dynamism, that kind of place of experimentalism, that, that anti-racism and all the issues it addressed could potentially foment. That rings true to me. And I particularly think of a moment that also came up when uh, Tita was talking about how anti-racism should also be a theory of, of resource management. There's this moment where June has been trying to lobby for Yaz to get the prestigious lectureship within the department. She thinks that this is going to be both a way of rewarding Yaz for the yeoman teaching and service work that she has done, while also recognizing the, you know, the prestige of her scholarship and hopefully retaining her as she becomes a, a more of a sort of commodity within the broader uh, profession. We have the, the very humorous cameo by David Duchovny that interrupts that plot line. And she tries to rationalize it to Yaz by saying, essentially, we're going to get something from this, right? That the, that the exchange is, you're not going to get to do the, the Department of Lectureship, but it's for the good of the department. And so that direction of resources and opportunities to an individual who happens to be the only other woman of color in the department is upended by the needs of the community, which are far more diluted, dispersed, ambiguous, that when we start talking about like what's good for the department, what even is the department, how are these people community when they seem to, by and large, kind of dislike each other and be constantly in competition with each other. I think that really rings true to some of what you've been saying about how, what, what is anti-racism if it is not the directing of resources to individuals who are from marginalized groups and who are often not given those opportunities, those resources in order to pursue their work. If I could, you know, the character of Yaz is, I mean, in, in the show, I've, it's just extraordinarily troubling for a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. It's not related to interior life, very much an occasion for, except for the, um, you know, the Sandra O oh character, an occasion for white people to act out their whiteness. Mm-hmm. And the subsequent kind of discourse about the chair amongst academics on Twitter and in media has revealed the deep structural racism that the the show, wittingly or not, reflects. I think it was just this week that in another podcast or another kind of public conversation, a retired former chair of the Stanford English Department, among many things, said, well, of course, the Black woman will get tenure. Statistically, that is untrue. Right. right? That is Quite to the contrary. It is absolutely the contrary. Patricia Matthews has a fantastic book everyone should read called Tenured Untenured, which speaks to the multiple roadblocks, the structural inequities that Yaz, as a Black English professor, would face. And yet there is this narrative that the retired chair of the English, of the Stanford English Department perpetuates that I think is very common amongst liberal and conservative thinkers, that it's easier that it is a, a given. And I think that is so deeply damaging on the individual level, as well as on the community level. So the you asked the question, what is the English department? From the opening scene of the chair, it is various hues of white masculinity with two people of color highlighting the whiteness. That's what, it's the drop, it's the drop of the color that highlights the whiteness. There should have been, okay, let's say we were like remaking the chair now, where it was like season two or or whatever, actually the prequel, you know, there should have been an episode 
where Sandra O's character goes to Dean and says, you know, we have not revised our tenure and promotion guidelines in like 20 years. We're way out of step with our peer institutions and the shape of the field. People are doing digital projects or doing collaborative and multimodal work. Before we even talk about Yaz or anyone else's promotion case, I'd like to call together a meeting and begin revising our policies. That's not good television, is that? That's not going to be a whole like 30 minute episode meeting where they're discussing and revising the tenure and promotion policies. But that's exactly the point, right? That's exactly why I think if you're going to be responsible and thoughtful and take on you know, the academy, it's actually sort of not the same as Dunder Mifflin or um, Starbucks or whatever. It actually is a, a highly unique institution, both in terms of its limits and its potentials. And I'm sad that it's so flattened in the ways that we're all talking about. I think the character of Yaz does really highlight one of the issues that the chair illuminates about the university. And the end of the chair kind of takes us back to right before the season starts. Everything is kind of back to normal. Joan is now the chair. The other old professors who the dean wanted to force out, they still have their jobs. The only thing that's different, really, I mean, Bill is still on campus, even though he's fighting for his job. Yaz is gone, right? She has gone and left the institution. So I think that is also really troubling that we have this whole season of events that conspire. And at the very end, everything is back not to normal, but to pre-normal that is that sort of predates this performance of diversity or anti-racism. It's it's the thing that came before that this new version of the university is trying to challenge, but then in so doing restores this version of the university that completely erases the only Black faculty member. That to me was very troubling too at the end. I don't know if the creators of the show did this on purpose or not, but that kind of struck me in the final scene of the series. The place of Yaz in this show, I don't want to read it as necessarily intentional or unintentional because I think in many ways it's very real, but there is no doubt that her interests are treated as fringe and auxiliary, even though her labor is treated as essential. Mm-hmm. Not only is this racialized, clearly, as the only Black member of the faculty, gendered as well as, as, as one of the two women of color, but there is also a, a significant age component, right? And, and Tita brought this up earlier as well. This One of the other things that the university is grappling with is how to reproduce itself with emerging scholars. And emerging scholars are deeply in demand from the students, but they are also way more precarious. And and Yaz being the only untenured member of the department and the only millennial, all of those things play into her tokenization which then complicates the fact that unlike almost all the other major characters, we don't really get a sense of her life beyond her interactions with the other members of the department. For understandable reasons, ji is the is the centerpiece of the show. Sandra Oh is the star. And her romantic relationship with Bill provides a crucial plot line that necessitates us getting to see him outside of the classroom as well. But we get, you know, we get to see Elliot and we get to see Joan in sort of private settings that we don't get to see yet. Mm -hmm. That question of why the creators and producers chose to limit our understanding of Yaz's character in a way that they didn't necessarily choose to limit any of the other characters. On the one hand, we can read it as Mm anti-Blackness. On the other hand, we can read it as that's kind of what happens. Recently at a conversation with a very, very good friend who, another institution, was in a kind of welcome, all of that. And there's, you know, there's the hype. And again, the research also bears this out, right? Hyper visibility Mm -hmm. of faculty of color 
and simultaneous invisibility. You know, I'm not I'm not ascribing intention to the the makers right. of the chair, but I think that what the show is doing is, I mean, it's I don't know how sophisticatedly, but but there is this utilitarian quality to Yaz as an object rather than a subject, and right. that indeed is the lived experience of faculty of color that in and of itself allows complexities and failings to some and not to others. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is so deeply inequitable. And you can, the way that plays out, a misstep by one can provoke eye rolling, but a misstep by another is catastrophic. I really appreciate what you're saying, Tita. And I also really appreciate what your, your, your assessment, Emily, your response to the show. And I'm thinking about, the piece I wrote in Inside Higher Ed. And I think one of the things I was trying to get at is that all the university knows how to do right now, and it's it's going to have to change, is absorb, right? That's what we saw is what happened in the 60s, right? We just, oh, there's this incredible revolutionary energy, ethnic studies, women's studies, African-American studies. And after everyone created their um, central admin buildings into bunkers, right? They took away the glass windows, <laughs> raised a building on, on stone edifices. After they did all that, then they called in the National Guard, just a few things like that. They figured out that they could just absorb and that the discipline would just simply let you have a seat at the table, right? And that was the diversity and inclusion perspective. So even though we've shifted to the, the language, the rhetoric of anti-racism, as Emily and Tita have been saying, we've all been talking about, we still have the mindset of diversity and inclusion, and we can't shake ourselves from that. But what I was trying to point out in that Inside Higher Ed piece is that if we continue in this mode of absorption, all our energies are in preservation and saving this idea what Emily is saying that the the conclusion the resolution of the chair is the return to normalcy right and of course post pandemic we can talk about that too all this language make the university great again <laughs> circa 2019 it's very troubling on all sorts of levels and what we really have to start doing actually is what i was talking about which is the shaking up the disruption, but also transformation such that the people who are now being welcomed and who are coming into the institution are themselves now owning it, transforming it, changing it. They're not belonging. They're not welcomed. They're not included. They are now whatever that institution is or can become. It's in them. It's them now. And that's where the vitality and the sustenance, there was a, a very creepy, disturbing roundup in the latest, I don't know if you got it in the Chronicle of Higher Ed about what um, universities are going to look like in 20 years. It's like, we're all going to have apps and we're just going to order, like, it's going to be like DoorDash. We're just going to say, I'll have like, you know, Jane Austen at seven and then I'll have like a little like Toni Morrison at Saturday at 8 a.m. with um, McMuffin. And I'm going to be listening to this in my car. Oh, and by the way, I'm getting a credential for my dentist. Um, you know, it's like <laughs> so disturbing. But taking um, the Chronicles, we take it. <laughs> it, it is, there is truth, though, that we, we just can't continue on as we are. And we have an amazing opportunity here. To, to really let these people who are at the cutting edge of what they're doing, who are absolutely bringing in some of the most vital, exciting, interesting things to happen intellectually, as far as I've seen, and I'm talking about you, Emily, and everyone in your generation and cohort. And this is our last best help, as far as I can understand it. I want to go down this road because I think it's what brings together Amanda's piece about being chair with Emily's piece about the little intimacies and that Tita captured in her wonderful description of the dialectic of visibility and invisibility. We are faced with this moment where the people who have the sort of reins of the institution are perhaps with the best of intentions 
tempted to instrumentalize the people on the fringes of the institution or the people who are emerging and trying to sort of claim a new space and that those ideas are very much needed and necessary. They're very exciting, both for students and faculty. But how do we platform and support and amplify and provide forum for new voices, marginalized voices, without it becoming simply the empty rhetoric of diversity and inclusion. You know, what makes it different? I think resources is definitely one piece of that. But I, I think there is a real challenge. I think about it even in terms of the Center for Mark Twain Studies, right? On the one hand, our project is to support an ever-growing and more diverse set of scholars. And we need those scholars for Twain studies to survive. We need those scholars to be younger. We can't just support established people and the routes to establishment are changing. And so we have to think about it differently. But on the other hand, right, the Center for Mark Twain Studies, because it is named after a dead white man, regardless of Twain's politics, which may have been progressive for his time, still has a kind of an innately conservative aspect to it, right? Anything that is founded upon preserving a study of a dead guy has some element of conservatism. And I use the Center for Mark Twain Studies, but I could easily use any number of examples, including pretty much every English department in America <laughs> is faced with some aspect of this contradiction in its mandate. How do we reconcile what I think all of you are really grappling with the desire to support, to platform, to amplify, to develop and mentor, right, to bring about a new generation that is more inclusive and also provides a, a desperately necessary fresh perspective with the recognition that there is still a power structure in place that is, by its very nature, somewhat tending towards what Amanda described as kind of saving and preserving. The reproduction model is so deeply embedded in any institution mm -hmm. and it's deeply characteristic of the university. Amanda and I are evidence of a thwarting of that. Okay. So we are life half lived full professors brought up in a feminist tradition, but we're still white identifying and of a particular class. And so, you know, and I look at it, my field is 18th century studies. White patriarchy has always had space for a smart daughter. <laughs> always. Right. I've weaved and bobbed through that. The structure of the university as it is today, and I speak from my position as a faculty member and having had different administrative roles, is that there is no space for dissent. And it's only through dissent that you actually get somewhere. The model of universities is very kind of top down and ideas being articulated and developed amongst a very small group of highly compensated individuals who are very divorced from the lived experience of the other 39,000 980 people who exist on this campus means that the robustness of what can be possible is really a moment of fear and apprehension, especially in this moment where everything is on fire. And the way that Emily captured and described the resolution of the chair, it's, it's back, it's way back. For some people, that's a very comforting narrative. And I think that is a narrative that played out leads to our collective demise. So for, for me, it's dissent. It's this idea of the loyal opposition, using that space of, of disagreement to, to reimagine. I have to say, for me, it's about um, repair. And what I mean by repair is both literal in terms of material reparations and all the ways we've been speaking this hour about reallocation and resources and fiscal priorities, whether that means thinking about the indigenous peoples that these land grab universities have displaced, 
whether that means programs for local high school students and underprivileged learners and different kinds of learners and new kinds of access for people. But I also think it's repair in the sense of imagining for the humanities something beyond simply production and transmission of knowledge, but also using knowledge to make things better for actual real communities in meaningful ways, whatever that means, whether that means creating communities for groups of people, whether that means healing, whether that means educating. I think there's a whole range of things that humanistic inquiry can do in the service of repair. So for me, that is the key idea. I guess I'll speak from um, just my perspective as a somewhat recent grad um, who spent several years on the job market um, with many peers who um, also went through the job market. And I think one of the things that I wish for the profession is that there was more space for all of these peers, you know, a lot of whom have spent several years on the market or who are adjuncting or in non-teaching positions who would be such an asset to the university. Again, resources, right? Resource management, the presidents of some of these prestigious institutions, if you compare their salaries to graduate students and adjuncts, I mean, the resources are there. So it's just a question of how do we prioritize those resources? Again, if we want to think about how we can make the university more anti-racist, one of those things is putting dollars into those initiatives, right? And hiring this whole generation of scholars who many of whom will not be able to find jobs um, at the university level, which is really, really unfortunate. I know I have a lot of really brilliant friends who have been struggling on the market for several years. It's just, it's not a question of intellect or ability, but really just the state of the university. And this is for me, and, and, and this has been said over and over again, this is, as Amanda said, we don't have to demand verisimilitude from a Netflix miniseries. But this is one of the gaps in the chair that that is most troubling for those of us who watch it from within higher ed. We have a single graduate student a single truly precariously employed member of the department who is not a particularly fleshed out character, uh, even even though she is this, this single a sort of acknowledgement that this department even has a graduate program. And we see no adjuncts. We see no contingent labor, as Emily is pointing out, right? That's a huge part of the reality of our profession as it currently stands. And I think as Keila Tompkins argued on the last episode, the practice and theory of anti-racism are in some ways aligned in our understanding of the labor conditions of the university, right? And I think that's one of the things that's missing from the chair for those of us who are deeply aware of what those conditions currently are. Amanda brought up that you are, uh, and Tita too, right, that you are of an institution that is serving 40,000 students, some, somewhere in that, uh, you know, a, re- a remarkably large public institution. And this is one of the questions that I, I asked Karen Tonkson in the first episode in which I've been sort of grappling with, like, to what extent does the chair try to homogenize university life? And by so doing, what does it miss about the peculiarities of the very diverse institutions, right? It isn't just that faculty are diverse. It isn't just that our interests are diverse, right? But the institutions themselves are wildly different. And whether Pembroke University is a small liberal arts college one sort of like the one that I work at or an Ivy League private university like the one that some of the writers and consultants came from or is a big state land-grant university, which certainly some of the plot lines suggest it could be. That seems to matter a lot. For, For listeners who are academics, right, how do you analyze your situation in order to think about how anti-racism can be more than just an idea that you read about and you teach your students? I think one of the the missing pieces of the chair, and I think it's a convenience for the show, right, is that it, it 
it's very clear that it's whatever it is, it's private. And being at a public institution, for better or for worse, there really is a mandate <laughs> to serve the public, the citizens of the state of Maryland, but more broadly, to think about what we're doing as I mean, in the words of our own president, a public good. And I, I, I don't take that at, at face value. Do I wish we were more accountable? Not in the being counting way that they are imagining it, but in the reckoning way. Yes, I wish we were more accountable to various publics. Do I wish that um, the idea of what constitutes public facing scholarship was a more, much more trenchant and elastic and, and well supported? Of course I do. But I will say just that I'm very grateful, actually, that I work at a public institution and I really genuinely believe in the endeavor as flawed as it is. And I think that there's great potential, actually, because of that. If I could add to Amanda in, in agreement, you know, there are 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, which is an extraordinary number. A potentially unsustainable number. <laughs> potentially unsustainable, right? Half of all undergraduate instruction occurs in community colleges. Three quarters of all instruction, undergraduate instruction in the country is done by precarious labor. Yet if like the chair, when you open up the pages of the New York Times, higher education is a private, well-endowed private school, usually one of the Ivies, maybe a lesser yeah. Ivy. So I think what the show captures, you know, that it's a version of education that's the Dead Poet Society. Again, like, you know, like Amanda, I'm not reading for verisimilitude, excuse me, but there, it is very powerful to look at what is being represented. And so when Yaz says, I have my students tweet, in this moment, all of a sudden, there are a whole cascade of implications when what college is and can be is so narrowly defined and imagined. Like Amanda, to work at a public university with these stated commitments to the community is something that's invalu invaluable to me and has been throughout through my career. In the space of the classroom, my students are drawn from it, it's still pretty narrow, but it, they're drawn from a, a larger pop of kind of cr greater cross section of our populace than ordinarily would be. And even for all of that, you know, I lived in Baltimore for a long time and I was in a mentoring program for young girls. And it was through that that I saw the number of students coming from Baltimore City high schools that matriculate at the University of Maryland is minuscule. Hopkins will scoop up some and, you know, the Ivies will scoop up some, but the flagship of the state does a huge disservice to the largest city in the state. So there's a lot of work there, but that's the work that needs to be done. Tita and I talked about this a little bit, but there was a moment where um, I had to really think about what kind of institution I would be able to sustain myself in. So um, I find it really um, interesting that you brought up this idea of the sustainable university and whether or not, you know, the future of the university, especially on the scale where we're seeing it now is sustainable or not. For me too, just as an individual, I had to think about what was sustainable for myself and how I could sort of do the work that I wanted to do in an institution and what that institution would have to look like in order for me to stay in the profession. I had a moment, you know, a few years ago where I had to make that really clear with myself. And it was really difficult because, you know, I think if I had been on the market in a different time, it might've been a different story, but I'm really grateful to be where I am. And I think one of those things is that it is a public state university um, that is invested in the, you know, larger community and the fact that we serve the community in which we are in, you know, that, that was something really important to me as a young person thinking about her career and whether it would continue in academia. And then, you know, now that I'm here, I'm hoping that on a larger scale, things will become more sustainable as well. I want to clarify that when I say that things are potentially unsustainable, 
I mean, under the regime of neoliberalism, mm-hmm. which has captured and sabotaged our higher education system progressively over the last half century, mm-hmm. right? I think the demand for education has never been greater. And the re- we have the resources if they are allocated with a recognition of that demand and of the value to society that a higher education provides for all members within it. Mm -hmm. So I I don't think it's unsustainable by its nature. It's unsustainable by its current organization. And I think that almost every institution in the country has a role to play, all 4,000 of those and maybe more. It's just a question of whether we are able to move beyond treating the university purely as a zero-sum corporation. Yeah, but Matt and others, I mean, the one thing that does come through in the show, the fact that this show, The Chair Even Exists at All, is that we have this powerful, as a culture in, in the United States, a powerful psychic investment in the university, wherever that comes from, whether it's, in my mind, misplaced nostalgia or if it's just blind optimism, or even if it's neoliberal greed. Somehow we we still invest in it. And I still want to go back to this point that I made at the top, which is we have the psychic investment in it as a really unique institution. I think the place where we all come together, even the Koch brother people out there, where we all sort of join up is this idea in wanting to preserve that uniqueness of our educational apparatus. And and that's not to say, I hope you hear me clearly, that's not to say that I'm Pollyannish, that it's all going to come to good ends. But I do understand that whatever this entity is, it's going to remain something, even if it's tainted or at this moment in time too imbricated with the economy or certain kinds of economies or certain kinds of, because of Board of Regents and governors, certain kind of political influences, it's going to remain its own thing. And for that reason, I actually feel in the long, long haul hopeful. It's not going to look like anything probably any of us on this podcast can imagine, but I do think it's going to, to, to live on in some way. I really do believe that. I'll just close then by asking uh, Tita to tell our listeners where they can find out more about your project, your collective project, what's coming up, what are you excited about, how should they get engaged and involved? Thank you so much. And also, I'm really, I'm with Amanda, I'm hopeful, yeah. yes. In small, I mean, what, I, what, what she was making me think of is that moment, college changes your life. A, a, a college class can change your life. And that's, you know, the, there aren't a lot of places that can do that. But thank you very so much. So the, the Center for Literary and Comparative Studies at the University of Maryland last year had uh, our big series called Anti-Racism, Research, Teaching, Public Engagement. From that, we have an archive of 19 videos. And if we can, I'll add the, the link. We'll, we'll make sure it's on the episode homepage and in the show notes, absolutely. Thank you very much. And in addition to that, we developed this symposium in the Los Angeles Review of Books, which we've mentioned, with um, 12 single authored essays, and Emily um, contributed one of them, as well as five conversations and a concluding essay. We also later this fall are publishing another cluster in public books. The idea behind this is that the collective generated so much work and dynamism uh, I knew that we a video archive would be one way of capturing it, but the, there's a lot of incredible work here. So I, as a steward of this, I looked to develop you know these kind of publication outlets. This year, we're continuing our work with a slight adjustment to our focus. So we're thinking about this return to campus, whatever that means and all the different ways that that takes place. And we're doing a second year of programming, anti-racism communities and collaborations, our first program, but which is on racial trauma in the classroom. And we're bringing University of Maryland alum, Professor Karitha Mitchell, who's a professor at Ohio State, as well as um, the chief diversity officer from Tulane University, to be in conversation about what the classroom 
is and thinking about trauma and the public racism of the last several years. We also, we are very excited. We get to host Honoré Fanon Jeffers, who was just named Oprah's Book of the Month, and she's everywhere. We She agreed to speak with us long before any of this big stuff happened. So she'll be here on the 20th. But this year we're doing a lot of collaborations. So Jeffers is with the PG County Libraries. Mm-hmm. We have another one with the Phillips Collection. We're uh, collaborating with Georgetown. So all of that is on our webpage. Excellent. And everyone is welcome. Thank you. Thank you all very much. It's been lovely to talk with you. That was Tita Chico, Amanda Bailey, and Emily Yoon Perez. For links to the events and publications we discussed, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash anti-racism. I'm Matt Siegel. Thanks for listening.